fun fact about baptisms here, if you've never seen one, is that our baptisms usually have a testimonial beforehand. So you get to tell the whole church, like, hey, this is why I'm doing it, and I love Jesus, and everybody's like, yeah, it's super fun. So, yeah, Kingdom Kids. We got a few volunteers in the room, Kasia, and (laughs) Kingdom Kids, they are in desperate need of help this upcoming Sunday, actually. So if you'll be here in town this weekend and you'd like to help out Kingdom Kids, please let Patrice know, Patrice over here with her hand up, please let Patrice know and she'll get you connected with the director of Kingdom Kids. Also, speaking of Kingdom Kids, they're having an event called Bunny Hop. There was an announcement about it in our group meet. Little bunny ears thingy, my Bob. And this is an Easter event that they're also looking for volunteers for. So if you're interested in having some volunteer experience, you can put these things on resumes or in a college. Well, you're already in college. Never mind. It's going to say college essay. Um, you can put it in a job essay, I guess. Um, so yeah, this event is April 9th, Saturday from 9.30 to 11.30. And um, it's kind of a fun thing. There'll be looking for you guys to just kind of help out with the kids wherever they need that help. So painting faces or attending to kids personally and cleaning and things like that. All right, personal prophetic encouragement. This will be Thursday, March 31st from 7 to 8 p.m. via Zoom. If you're interested in this, then you can register online at the same, oh, it's not there. The church website slash events, tvc.us slash events. You'll find it there. You can scroll until you find personal prophetic encouragement. And then that's also just a really good way to hear directly from God through another person, whatever it is that God has for you. All right, events. Bowling at the Union slash Cocomero. So this is an event coming up March 25th, Friday, 6.30 p.m. What we would do is bowl first. I am a sore loser. I'm going to make that announcement publicly here. I do not like to lose. You're, I'm just going to say that. I also suck at bowling. So if you guys want to come and see that just for fun, come on down. That will be March 25th, Friday, 6.30 p.m. And then after that, we'll all head together um, to Coco Mero, just fellowship, laugh, have some fun, eat some frozen yogurt. And, yeah, that will be great. Oh, for signing up for that, what we're trying to figure out is, like, group prices and things like that, if that's possible for bowling. Casey will put a sign-up sheet in the group meet later on for more information on that. And everything that I have announced, you will find out again. Like, you don't have to be trusted to trust your brain to remember it. I'm going to put a lot of these things in our group meet for everybody's mind as well. So before we get into the rest of our night, we have some representatives from HOTS here to talk to us about healing on the streets. Thank you. Um, Randy Barton, this is my wife, Harriet. Um, I've been coming to the vineyard for about... Um, I guess it's 18 years now, so quite a while. Um, have you all heard of Healing on the Streets? Hots, okay. So Mark Marks started it, um, this ministry in uh, Northern Ireland in 2005 uh, when he got together with a vineyard church there. And he came to um, this church in... Uh, it was about seven years ago, a little over seven years, and he um, 
did a training on HOTS, and uh, we were all on board with it. And we started uh, healing on the streets. And uh, for about the past four or five years, we've been downtown Champaign at the uh, train and bus station there. And we are looking to expand locations, and especially uh, we're looking at campus. And uh, we think that it would it's just a fertile field for this kind of outreach. Um, it is non-confrontational. It's a compassionate ministry on the streets. Um, and so, uh, like I said, we've, we've been uh, downtown Champaign. And uh, just to give you an example, we were um, there uh, one Saturday afternoon. We're there from 1 to 3 every Saturday. And uh, a young guy came up, and uh, we started an interaction with him and found out that he is a student at the U of I. We get a few of those coming through. And uh, he was interested in getting uh, hooked up with a church. So, um, and his, he said his parents were especially interested in him getting hooked up with a church. So uh, he came to the uh, vineyard the next day, and uh, he sat with us. Uh, we introduced him to some friends of ours after the service. Uh, he, uh, we took him to the uh, small group pastor and signed him up for a small group. So. You just never know. I mean, uh, it's healing on the streets, and yes, there is healing. We do healing prayer, but there's all kinds of ministry that goes on. And uh, it's just a, a, an opportunity for you to touch people on campus um, who are really in need of an encounter with God. So, um, but it is a little intimidating, I know. Um, and so what we've done is we have uh, scheduled a training for April 2nd. Uh, there's sign-up sheets on your table, uh, 10 to 12 uh, at C3 here at the church. And then um, later we're going to do uh, the regular HOTS ministry uh, downtown Champaign. So those who uh, come to the training are certainly welcome to join us. So we would... Uh, love to have you sign up and uh, you know it's uh, the point is we want to be there uh, we want to be available for people who need God's touch and uh, where, what better place than the University of Illinois campus so um, by doing this you know we can partner with God and what he's doing and see him extend the miraculous so um, that's all I have. Did you have anything else to add, honey? Um, we have an extraordinary opportunity to minister to broken people. Um, there are a lot of homeless in the area. I know you probably see them on campus, too. Um, we pray for addiction. Um, we pray for people who've made it off the street. But because their former friends from the street are trying to kind of pull them back down. They've come to us for prayer to not use again. 
we pray for provision for people who don't have a place, well, a lot of homeless. Uh, they're looking for a safe place to sleep. Um, they can't get into the shelter because they have an addiction to alcohol or something else. Um, they're looking for food. Um, we pray for sciatic pain. We, pay, we pray for knee pain, ankle pain, back aches, headaches, neck pain. We've seen healing. We've seen healings quite a bit. Um, we've seen healings in sciatic pain in the hip. Um, we've prayed for the leg lengthening, growing out. If you go online and Google Mark Marks, he has a lot of ministry centered around this type of healing. It's a basic chiropractic philosophy. It, it's, it helps to align the hips and cures a lot of pain for people. However, usually somebody will go to a chiropractor for years to, be, to, to maintain their healing, but we see healing instantly because it's the Holy Spirit. We've seen things happen that are just amazing and just really can't be explained. We've seen people um, walk that couldn't walk. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity. The world is broken, it's hurting, and you have something so precious. You have your youth, you have your, you have your enthusiasm, you have an unbreakable, unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. The world needs you. The, the world needs your optimism and your hope. I'd like to leave you with a quote from Mark Marx. This was something that um, he is attributed to him. Um, Shortly before a trip to Pakistan, where he ministered to 50,000 people, we peer into the mist and see a little of so much more. Fear settles for the little. Faith steps into the more. Thank you for your time. So let's just give uh, Randy and Harriet another round of applause. Um, Healing on the Streets is every Saturday. It's down at the bus station, downtown Champaign. It's from 1 to 3. If you want to get your feet wet in praying for people and standing up and stepping out into what God calls us to do, um, go visit because um, it's well worth it. In Matthew 10, 8, it says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without paying. And that just means freely give, 
freely give, or freely receive, freely give. So um, that's, we're, we're looking at different uh, ways to um, move healing on the streets and build it, but um, right now it's down at the bus station. So without further ado, everybody extend their hands this way. So uh, right now we're just going to pray over Amir that in his boldness, he just stands up and steps out into what God has for him. So God, right now we just pray for more over Amir, Lord, that he just extends the miraculous tonight. So God, just have your way. In Jesus' name. Hello, everybody. I'm going to need Andrea's or to <clears throat> be quiet. Wow. How many people think public speaking is cool? Public speaking is only cool on a stage. It is appropriate nowhere else. Everywhere else, I just talk too much. <laughs> All right. So the topic of the night, what we're talking about, is the organic gospel. And the issue that I am trying to address is that for many of us, in the way that we interact with our faith, um, I think we pretend that it's organic. I think we pretend it makes sense, but it often feels very disconnected from our lived experience and our lived reality. Um, we, we use words like iniquity, righteousness, sin, holiness, glory, gospel, but none of these words come from the 21st century. All of them are translated multiple times over from different languages, and the meaning gets watered down. Like, how many people just go up using, like, uh, like a, I can't think of a word. Let's go back to um, the, why can't I think of this? Like, Knights in Shining Armor. What, what age is that? It's called something. Say it again. Medieval times, right? Like, like some ancient word. You, it just doesn't make sense in, in, our, in our context. And, and I think that loses a lot of meaning, and I think it loses a lot in translation. Um, so, so how many people think they know what the Bible are? Does anybody want to take a shot at it? What's the, what's the Bible? What is it? Okay. Swear to God. Anybody else? Oh, okay. I like that. That was good. What else? I, I really think, I, I think the problem starts there. So, like, the, depending on the way that we look at what the Bible is, is going to determine the way we interact with words like sin or holiness or glory or whatever. So, if I look at the Bible as B-I-B-L-E, anybody heard that acronym before? Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. No. Uh, then the way that I look at sin is, is really going to be determined by that lens. How does the Bible begin? What are the first words? In the beginning. How does the Bible end in Revelations? It ends with the new earth and the new creation, and in the end is written. It is finished. So at the very beginning, we know it's a story. It's a story. And what is it a story of? Okay. Who is the story about? Is it really about Jesus? Is it about us? None of y'all are wrong. It's about God. 
it's really not about Jesus, or we don't know that it's about Jesus till we hop to the New Testament. What it's really about is this figure called the Messiah. And the Messiah was this common thread that is connected throughout the Bible. And all we see is humans failing over and over again. People coming close to this idea of being in perfect unity with God and being a proper leader for the people. And then they do something like just God awful. So you see Moses, or we, let's start with Abraham. You got Abraham. Abraham's great. He's doing the thing. He's called the faithful servant of the Lord. And then he lies about uh, who his wife is so that some foreign king can sleep with her. Okay, scratch now. Next person, we got Moses. You got Moses. Moses is a great guy, great, but he is filled with anger and all that stuff. He misses the mark. Um, okay, scratch that. We got David. David seems like a great guy, handsome king, short guy, all of that. And uh, then he kills someone's uh, husband and sleeps with her. And so it's just like becomes this trend and this pattern that the biblical authors are trying to nail in our head over and over and over again. So, so the thing that's communicated is, is we need a Messiah. A Messiah simply is translated, we need, we need a Savior. Now, this is an interesting question of who or what or where, what do we need saving from? And I think most of us have been most uh, frequently taught that what we need saving from is earth. We define sin and the definition is the thing that keeps us trapped here and keeps us locked out of the pearly gates. If I have too many of these things, these things cause sin. If I do too much of it, uh, you're a terrible person, you're evil, you're disgusting, you deserve to burn, you deserve to be stabbed forever in the pits of hell. That's where your life, that's where you deserve to go, and I need to get the heck out of here. But, but that's not exactly what the Bible says. Okay, so who has ever felt like in their life, at least this is my experience, um, I'm doing my life. Life is hard. It's heavy. It's got all these things that I have to worry about. I'm already stressed. I'm already depressed. I already got this thing. And then God just asked me to carry this monkey on my back that seems to be completely disconnected and irrelevant to what I'm supposed to do with my life. Has anybody ever felt that way? Is it just me? It's like, it's like, dang, life is hard. And then you're like, God, don't drink. Okay. Uh, don't have sex. And so, and so for, if we don't connect and restore the identity of these words and what they mean, we just are doing something very trivial. It's empty. So we're going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to be hopping around quite a bit. If y'all can open up to Genesis 1 with me. Genesis is my favorite, one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, as I've learned how to research this, it's just so cool um, how different the Bible is. So the first thing that I want to hound in your head is that the Bible is what is called Judic, Judaic uh, meditation literature. Say that, say that with me. Judaic meditation literature. And what does that mean? So it's people, most people think meditating um, is this concept where you empty your mind, you clear your head, and you clear it of uh, all of the things that you're thinking about. But in biblical terms, what meditation means is to contemplate, is to think about day in and day out, night and day. And so I want to show you guys a particular pattern that's going to create a category uh, of literature within the Bible that we're not used to seeing. And so we're going to hop down to where God is creating in Genesis 1. And so when he's creating, there's this pattern. Um, 
every time he creates something, what is the thing that he says about the creation? And particularly, in what way does he say it? Give me a second. I'm going to find a phrase. And God saw that the light was good, right? Okay, God said, let there be expanse in the midst of the water and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated, blah, 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 blah. And there was evening and there was not the second day. God said, la, la, la. And then I'm, I'm jumping down to verse 10. God called the dry land earth, the waters that were gathered together, the seas, and God saw that it was good. And you're going to see this phrase play out a couple more times. Okay, I just want to put that in your head. So obviously we're seeing God create something, and we're seeing that he has defined it and, uh, as good. He saw that it was good. This is going to be a popular phrase, and we're now going to hop down to Genesis 3 and 6. Let me know when you're there. I guess, yeah, let the church say amen. So Genesis 3, 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruits and ate. Okay, does everybody see that? It's a direct attachment, and this is something the Bible does often, and this is why I love Genesis so the Genesis is painted in this garden scenario, in this atmosphere, right? It's in a garden. A garden is fertile. A garden is rich with crops and fruit and all of that. Now, this common literary thing that you'll see is Genesis is also fertile for all of the other concepts and ideas that we see later in the Bible. So we're going to see these things, and what they're going to do is in Hebrew, they're going to use the same exact phrase so that when you see it later in the Bible, you automatically hop back there. Something to know about the ancient Jews um, in the time. They didn't have the Bible. The Bible is what's known as a codex. It's a collection of scrolls all put together. What they had was particular scrolls here and there. They didn't have the entire literature. So for them, these scrolls were very valuable, and they would often memorize them. In other words, they would meditate on them. And so they would see these phrases and these themes, and they would be tying them all together like a web and connecting this collage of a story, this epic that forms over thousands of years. And just to prove this to you, I'm going to hop down, and I'm going to take you to one last place, and we'll pause with the scripture for a second. But we're hopping to 2 Samuel 11 and verse 2. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it to you. So this is David, the awful king that I was talking about. Um, <laughs> It's, it's crazy to hear me say that, right, because most people put David in the most positive light, but I think that's missing the point. It's illuminating the wrong person. David, in none of the things that he did, it wasn't about him. It was about the grace of God that was extended to him to serve a purpose for what he was doing. So it says, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David rose from his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. So this is going on, playing back to Genesis when Eve saw that the tree was good, and it was good to give her wisdom. And now this is a common distinction that I want to make. There is a difference between what is sin or what we look at and wisdom literature. 
okay? Wisdom literature is going to be common. The book of Genesis is heavily going to be used in it as the book of Genesis will be almost in any book of the Bible. But particularly, uh, it's, pro- it's Genesis, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, which are commonly known as the wisdom literature. Now, I make this important distinction on purpose. Okay. So, first of all, let's wrap up. Let me, let me, this is a lot I'm throwing at y'all. It's a lot at once. So, the first thing I want to recap. So, earth for us has become a place we need to escape. Um, and, and the way that we preach the gospel is, is something of what's opposite of the good news. We uh, teach that humanity is awful. Uh, we teach phrases like less of us means more of God. Has anybody ever heard phrases like that? Right? Yeah, yeah less of me, God, less of me. So, there's more room for you. Everybody heard phrases like that? Okay, it's not just me. Okay, and so this is important in distinction because what I want to do by separating these is show you that sin at its core is relational. Sin will always be a relational issue, a relational thing. Um, If you go back to Genesis and the story that I told you about Adam, and we didn't look at what the serpent said, but this is what the serpent said. Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from any tree of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the, of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. and You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is this serpent attempting to do? In this part of the narrative. What is another word for making her doubt? What is he trying to break? He's trying to break something. What is it? Trust. So the first instance of this, and what is trust? It's relational. It's relational. And what does the breaking of that trust incite us to do? Sin or pursue wisdom from our own eyes. And that's why eyes are a common pattern because it talks about perception and it puts our perception against God's perception. And it also puts our perceptions against each other. Now I know what's best for me. I need to know what's best for me. I need to be the most wise because I can't trust anybody else. I can't trust my brothers. They, I can't trust my sisters. I can't trust my friends. All of them have different perceptions of me. All of them are determining what is good and what is evil for themselves. How can I trust that they, their values will be along, aligned with mine? I have to think about me. I have to put me first. I can't even trust the creator of the universe. He's trying to hide and take wisdom from me. He's trying to keep something that is good away from me. So sin, at its core, is a relational issue. So we're going to play this first video. It's actually from the Bible Project. These are like some of my favorite people ever. Um, It's where I do and start a lot of my research. Um, And this first video is going to introduce uh, more about what this word sin means for us. a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. 
It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so sin is a failure to be truly human, but there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you, but you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin or moral failure is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia 
as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. It was good, right? Wasn't that cool? Wasn't the cool little animations? You know what I'm saying? It helps with my ADHD. Um, so, sin. Is that like what t- people are typically used to hearing about sin? Missing the mark? Missing. What are we missing the mark of? Okay. And what does relationship with God define? Yes, absolutely. Is he directly tied to commandments? Has anybody ever noticed that half of the commandments, right? And what is that, what he's arguing, what, what, what that literal, literally is trying to communicate is that loving God is not different than loving people. How does that change God's priorities to you? So then the question should be, how are the things that he's telling us to abstain from or that are we define as sin? How is that affecting our relationship and humanity with each other? It's not about a golden ticket. It's not about going anywhere else. It's it's about a relationship that has been fragmented and broken and an image that has been torn down. We are imagers. That's actually what the humans are called back in Genesis. Let us make man in our image so that he may represent and be like us. That was, that was the goal. And the way that we were to do that is by loving God and loving people. So when we're sinning, what we're really doing is we're missing the f- mark of what it means to be fully human. To be more like God doesn't mean to be less like me. It means to be more like me. To be more like me. And I want you to pay attention. Was the first mention of sin in in the Adam and Eve story in the video? Did anybody catch that? When was the first instance of sin? Cain and Abel. You see the distinguishment. See, doing unwise things are not necessarily sin, but they will eventually lead there. So maybe I have, you know... A glass, a shot, two shots, you know, maybe I have a cup of wine. Is that inherently sin? Is having 10 glasses of wine or 10 shots sin? Is it wise? 
Has anybody heard about the incident with the young lady um, lost her life or may have lost her life? We're not going to talk about putting fault on any party, one or the other. But was it wise to get to a space where that kind of conflict is, is likely to happen? It, whose fault is it really? Is sin putting fault on any particular person? Sin is the result of when wisdom and determining wisdom for ourselves gets out of our own hands and it gets too messy for us to clean up on our own. It's not contained by any one person. It's, it's this whirlwind of damaged relationship between other people. It's when I break trust with you and you go break trust with someone else because they broke trust with you. And then it creates a culture of broken trust. And then it creates coping mechanisms that come along with that broken trust. So sin is a relational issue. And I want to remove the stigma from this word and the condemnation attached to it from other people. Because we're out, and a lot of us, uh, being very crude and judgmental when we're missing the point. Sin is not about any one particular act or deed. It's about who we're living up to being. And I think we miss the concept of when we ignore our brothers and sisters who are hurting in other places and areas, that is just as much sin as any other thing that we're doing because it's missing the mark of what it means to be human. Jesus says this in Matthew 22, 34 through 30. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher. Which is the great greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about. <laughs> Part two coming up shortly. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is a really cool thing that most of us don't even know that he did. The man asked for one greatest commandment. How many did he give him? Two. Did he prioritize any one of them? Did he say one was greater than the other? They're together. This is a reference to a Judaic text that the Jewish people meditated on daily. It's a reference all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And this is something that I also want to emphasize going back to what the Bible is. The Bible is literature. It's a story. It's poetry. It's imagery connecting themes. It's not simple as something as an instruction manual. As the video told us, it's not that it doesn't want to influence our character and who we become, but the way that it does that is not typical to the way we see it. We're clouded by an age of information and technology that simply views the Bible as a reference book on how to execute our lives. It's missing the mark. It's missing the point. That is just as much sin as anything else. 
Look at the cruelty that we've done to other people by missing the mark of the image that it is trying to capture. So like I said, this is a reference to Deuteronomy. And, and, and we would not understand the depths of what this passage is teaching if we didn't know what he's referencing. He's not simply answering his questions. He's being very critical and strategic in his arguments. It's very crazy when you see this. So I'm going to read this to you. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlet, frontlets, I don't, I don't know that word, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is called the Shema. The Shema is a particular meditation and a thing that they would take place in several times a day. It's very similar to the Mecca or praying to Allah um, at the five different times of day, right, depending on the positioning of the sun. They would do this typically about three times a day, and there was something that they were meditating on. And as they continued to say this, they were being reminded and shown connections of what it looks like to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So Jesus is referencing this particularly, and he's using, once again, like we can, we're going to title that hyperlinks. When you see a particular phrase repeating itself, it's called a hyperlink. Um, and so he says that, we're going to hop and read it one more time. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your mind. And then what does he attach along to it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the same commandment. They're inseparable. When we see God start wars or, or show his wrath or, or come after a people, it's typically after ignored uh, genocide or slavery or the belittlement and, and oppression of other people. Uh, it, it, makes, it makes God so much more present and concerned about what is going on with humanity. It, it, it humanizes what he's asking us to live up to. He's asking us not to destroy the gears that churn within us, the machine and the way that it's supposed to work of what it means to be human. He's asking us to break trust. And actually, if you look at Paul, one of the biggest theologians, one of the biggest people of the, of the New Testament, what he often calls the ministry that Christ brought is the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a relational word. It's a relational word. We're supposed to be restoring trust with ourselves and God, trust with ourselves and our brothers, trust with our countries, trust with the people around us. It's a comical biblical theme. We go into James 1 and 26 says that religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. To keep oneself unstained from the world. The widows, the orphans, and I believe the other one was the aliens the, in their affliction. 
to people who are homeless, people who have lost their caretakers, their, the, the most pivotal people in your life who shape and form your psychology of how you think and learn how to trust, to see about them. To be the image of God, there's a common thing that the biblical authors will do when there is a typical messianic figure such as Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon. Uh, what, what they'll do is they will use language in such a way where it confuses the boundary of who is God and who is man. And, and the point is that at the fullness of our humanity, that is exactly what we're doing. That is what it means to be an imager. So my question to you is, 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 what is sin and how does this change your definition? So a woman gets raped. She gets pregnant. She goes to abortion. What, which, where was the sin? When, when did it start? Was it when she decided that she didn't want to push a child that came from another man out of her legs? What, was it when the man raped her? Was it when that man, who, what, whoever raped him, that caused him to have this paper? Uh, this, this attraction or this, where, where did it begin? Who can point the first finger? Who, and most people would have cast the first stone at the woman. And, and we try to create these lines and we decide for ourselves from our own eyes what to do and how to treat them when the first and the foremost most important commandment was, I believe, to love God and to love others as yourself. What, 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 what is sin? When, was, it, was it sin when they became an alcoholic or was it, was it sin when their parents neglected and abandoned them and, and, and taught them to distrust and tra- taught them to trust substances more than people or trust our phones more than people or trust technology more than people or trust pornography more than people or to trust whatever vice that you use to, to fragment and separate yourself from other people? When you break trust, what is the number one thing that will be stimulated out of it? Selfishness. When you break trust, it teaches you that the only thing and the only person that you should be worried about is yourself. And that is sin because if you are meant to be reflecting the image of God and I am meant to be known and to know you, then if I am only worried about me, I am not looking at you or the image that you bear. You just become a vice. There's just walls and screens that split and separate all of us. So now we can play the second video that played earlier. All of these words, there's three of these, but all of them are linked together to discuss a language of what sin is. And these are often the words that we're coming in encounter with. This one particularly is called iniquity. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. 
this is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Sin refers to moral failure, and transgression describes how we break trust with others. And iniquity? No one even uses that word anymore. So what's it all about? In Bible translations, iniquity is one way the Hebrew word avon gets translated. It's also rendered by words like wickedness, guilt, or sin. So what does avon actually mean? The word avon is related to a Hebrew verb ava, which means to be bent or crooked. The poet of Psalm 36 says his back is avad, that is, bent over in pain. Or in Lamentations chapter 3, a road that isn't straight is one that avaz, that is, it's twisty and crooked. Now, this image of being crooked offered biblical poets a powerful metaphor to talk about people's behavior. Like Jeremiah, who said that Israel had avad their way by violating their covenant with God and giving allegiance to idols. Or in the book of Job, a person who morally fails is someone who avaz what is right. In both cases, something that's supposed to be level or even your choice or your conscience has been bent out of shape, distorted. In the Bible, avon refers to all kinds of crooked behavior, Ten Commandments kind of stuff, lying, murder, adultery. In Isaiah chapter 59, avon describes the corruption among Israel's leaders who were ignoring the injustice done to the poor. The prophet cleverly adapts the metaphor, saying, we have so much avon, that is crookedness, that uprightness can't even enter our city. Things were so morally distorted in Jerusalem that crooked was the new straight. Another fascinating thing about the word avon is that it refers not only to distorted behavior, but also to the crooked consequences. The hurt people, the broken relationships, the cycles of retaliation. You find this idea in the biblical phrase to punish, which in biblical Hebrew is to visit someone's avon upon them. That is, to let them sit in the consequences of their crooked choices. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said about the Babylonians who were destroying other nations. One day, those nations would destroy them in return. And so Babylon's divine punishment would be having to live in a disfigured world of its own making. This is actually the main way biblical authors talk about God's response to human avon, letting people experience the crooked consequences of their choices. This is the meaning of the common biblical phrase, to bear your iniquity or in Hebrew, to carry your avon. God gives people the dignity of carrying the consequences of their bad decisions. But that's not the only way God responds to avon in the Bible. He also offers to carry the avon of corrupt people as an act of sheer generosity. In fact, carrying avon is the most common Hebrew phrase for God's forgiveness. Like Psalm 32, where the poet says, I didn't hide my avon, but confessed it, and you carried the avon of my sin. This is actually shocking if you stop and think about it. God forgives people by taking responsibility for their avon. This idea reaches its high point in the book of Isaiah, where God appoints a figure called the servant. He will embody God's forgiving love by carrying the avon of many and allowing it to crush him. This servant will absorb humanity's crookedness, letting it overwhelm and destroy him. But that's not the end of the story. The servant will emerge out the other side of death, alive and well, so he can offer his life to others. When you get to the New Testament, the apostles carry these ideas forward using the Greek word onomia, which has a similar meaning. 
Like Paul the Apostle, he identified the servant as Jesus, and he said, our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, gave his life on our behalf in order to redeem us from all of our onomia, our crooked behavior and its consequences. And so, the whole biblical story is about God's desire to take crooked people and the twisted world that we've created and to make everything right. Through Jesus, God invites us to become whole humans once again, people who can walk upright with God and with each other. And that's the story behind the biblical words for iniquity. Uh, da, da, okay. So his, in, his forgiveness is taking the mess that we made from determining wisdom from our own eyes and the world that we created, we created this world and the way and the state that it is in over thousands, hundreds and of years of, of our, our human influence of what we did to the environment, of what we did to nature, of what we did to each other, of what we did to each other's peoples. We did this. And he took what we thought was wisdom upon him and he said, let me apply my wisdom to it. Right? That, that's what his forgiveness looks like, is cleaning up the mess that is without, out of our control, the spiral that we can't stop. The, 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 it goes back to, to Genesis when it was, this is where wisdom literature comes in. It's because when we think we know best is why the world looks the way that it does. The common uh, word, um, idea in in actual, in the messianic realm, is that the world would be restored to the condition of the new heaven and the new earth. The mandate was for heaven to become as earth. That's what the garden narrative is painting. Actually, this is pretty cool. So when you think of most uh, religions, like whether it's Greek, uh, Egyptian, or Hebrew, whatever the case, where are gods? If they were going to be here, where are they going to be? Above in a mountain. Who said mountain? Mount Olympus, Zeus. Mount Sinai. They're all on mountaintops. There's several more. Mount Herod, which is where the god Baal often lied. Where are mountains? Where are mountains? Where do they touch? The skies. What was known as the heavens? The skies, right? So this is the place where heaven and earth overlapped. If you go back to Genesis, actually, there's four rivers that water the four corners of the earth. It's really two rivers that intersect where the rivers flow. If they, if they flow downstream and they intersect at the top, where is Eden? On a mountain where God resides, where humanity resides and what we were supposed to do was to tame the rest of the land that it may resemble the garden that was the mandate did that ma when when he kicked us out of the garden who thinks it was a punishment it's common right it's a punishment but that's not what it actually says when he kicked us out of the garden One second, guys. Oh, I'm in the wrong place. This isn't even Genesis. All right. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God said, sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man and the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Is that a punishment? Why did he kick us out of the garden? To protect us from what? Ourselves. Because what would happen if a perpetual sin or death be in a vessel that lives eternally? C.S. Lewis's depiction of hell is this. Let's pick any vice, any sinful, traditionally sinful vice. And you do it consistently for 10 years. What kind of person do you become? What do you look like? What does your humanity look like? Let's say you do heroin for 10 years and live. And, and this is not condemnation or judgment. We're not looking down on this person. But how desperate do you become that you're willing to lie, to steal, to take, to break trust with the people that are the closest to you? What does that do to you over 10 years? Now imagine heroin actually doesn't kill you. And you live forever. What does that do to you in 100 years? What does that do to you in 1,000 years? What does that do to you in 10,000 years? Who do you become? You become a person who is so unrepentant, who is so bitter, who is so unchanging, whose heart has been so hardened that you become completely unreachable. And that is the state of hell. That is how he defines it. He argues that, that to, to, to love means to be hurt. It means to be exposed and vulnerable. And it is possible to avoid pain, but it's only at the sacrifice of your heart. It's only at the murder of the thing that makes you the most human that you can live that way. It is only if you sacrifice every version of trust that you would know that you could live that way and not be hurt, and not be damaged, and not be affected by the brokenness of the human condition. That is what he depicts as hell. So returning back to now what I said about where we need to be saved from and our golden ticket out of here to get the heck out of here so we can go in the pearly gates, it's not earth that we need saving from. It's us. We need saving from ourselves we need saving from the, the way that we lie to ourselves, the self-deception, the ways that we cope with the things that we do and the way that we see ourselves knowing. And Jesus comes to clean up the mess, right? Why, why would a God do that? Because that was the way it was always intended to be. Why do we need a savior? Because there was never supposed to be a separation to begin with. Why is there grace? Because grace is the same thing as God's continual love on earth. That's what it would have looked like.
I'm going to shut up because we still have one more thing to watch before it's five minutes and we're going to be done. I'm going to wrap up, and I want you guys to talk for a few minutes with some discussion questions after we watch this. Side note, that was an accident. We weren't actually supposed to watch that video, but I really, really wanted to, but I just didn't think we'd have the time. This is the actual one we were supposed to watch. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity refers to behavior that's crooked, while sin refers to moral failure. And transgression, this is a fascinating word that you for sure haven't used in conversation recently. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. In Old Testament Hebrew, the noun is pesha, and the verb is pasha. In the New Testament, the Greek word is paraptoma. They're usually translated as transgression, sometimes as rebellion, and in older translations as trespass. These words refer to ways that people violate the trust of others. Pesha describes the betrayal of a relationship, and since there are many kinds of relationships, a lot of different behaviors can be called pesha. Like if two nations are in a relationship, we would call that a treaty, and Pasha would describe the breaking of that agreement. Like in the biblical book of 2 Kings, we read, after the death of King Ahab, Moab Pashad with Israel. Now, this is usually translated, Moab rebelled against Israel. But in biblical Hebrew, you don't Pasha against someone, you Pasha with them. That is, you break trust with that person. The same idea appears in an Old Testament law about theft. If an Israelite is away on a trip and somebody sneaks into their house and steals something, that's robbery. But if the thief was your neighbor, it's Pesha because there's someone you should be able to trust. Or there's a story about Jacob running away from Laban, his uncle. Laban accuses Jacob of stealing some idol statues. He searches all of Jacob's belongings and he finds nothing. So Jacob shouts, what is my Pesha? How have I violated your trust? But the sad irony is that the statues were stolen by Jacob's wife, who is Laban's own daughter. Talk about breaking trust. So Pesha involves one person or group violating a relationship of trust with another. And this is a really common word in the Bible because it's one long story about a broken relationship between God and the Israelites. At Mount Sinai, they agreed to worship only their God and to care for the poor among them, but they didn't. And so God raised up prophets to confront them like Micah, who said, I'm full of power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage, so I can declare to Jacob his Pesha. Or the prophet Amos, he accused the Israelites of Pesha, specifically for idolatry and selling the poor for a pair of sandals. He also accused other nations like Tyre, who profited from capturing whole towns and then selling them into slavery. Or the Ammonites for murdering the innocent to enlarge their borders. For Amos, these are all acts of Pesha. They violate the universal trust that exists between all humans who are made in the image of God. He watched these leaders ignore or justify the mistreatment of humans in the name of national security or a strong economy. But for Amos, it was a betrayal of humanity. And it makes perfect sense why these prophets associate Pesha with words like treachery or falsehood. In the Greek New Testament, the Apostle Paul develops this portrait of humans as trust breakers, using the word paraptoma. He recalls the story in Genesis about Adam, it means humanity in Hebrew. 
And in that story, humanity breaks trust with God and seizes authority to discern good and evil on their own terms. Paul calls this the paraptoma of Adam, humanity's violation of trust with God and with each other. And it leads to a complicated web of betrayed and broken relationships leading towards violence and death. But for Paul, that is not the last word. He says, if death came to all by the paraptoma of a human, how much more will God's gracious gift overflow to many by means of a human, Jesus the Messiah? Instead of letting humanity destroy itself in treachery, God raised up a human who would allow our Pasha to do its worst to him. Here Paul is drawing on the prophet Isaiah's portrait of the suffering servant, the one who would commit no violence or have any treachery on his lips, yet he would be counted among those Pasha, bearing their failures and interceding on their behalf. And this is the surprising story of the Bible, that God's response to humanity's Pasha and Paraptoma was to be trustworthy on our behalf. The apostles claim that in Jesus, God took responsibility for our betrayal so that he could open up a new future and a new way to be human, the way of faithfulness, trustworthiness, and integrity. That's the kind of human that Jesus was and is, and it's the kind of humans he wants to create as he faithfully guides our world into the new creation. And that's the fascinating story behind our biblical words for transgression. All right. I can't hold y'all much longer or else I'll get in trouble. Um, so this is me wrapping up. Um, computer hopefully didn't die. Sorry, guys. So I want people to reflect on that, that the thing that we need saving from is actually not the planet. It's actually not this evil place, but it's people. I want you to think about who the gospel is actually for and associate it to the right groups. When we're talking about the poor, the widowed, the orphaned, the gospel typically is about them. And when you talk about the gospel for people who are privileged, because it's not wrong to be privileged, it's not evil or, or crooked to be privileged, but it's the opportunity for the privileged to, to care for those in other in least and less fortunate places to distribute the resources to restore trust but the gospel typically for them is alleviation but when you ever see like when the man came up to him Jesus Jesus what do I have to do to get up to heaven what did he say to him give up everything that you own and follow me so there's an invitation for our humanity and trust to be restored, to trust not our luxuries, but, but God and people and relationships and trust that I, I promise that that will be more fulfilling than any of these things ever would be. And, and, and in that, not only is it more fulfilling for you, but it's an opportunity for life for them. And, and, and it's the elevation and the reassembling of platforms all over the place so that the world resembles Eden. What's the opposite of Eden? And this is where I'm ending. This is where I'm ending, and then I want, I want the discussion questions up there. So God kicks us out of the garden to protect us from ourselves. His redemption plan is already in play. He's not given up Eden and his Edenic vision to spread Eden all over the globe. But there's 
a different thing. We're in contact with other beings called, they're called the Benelohim. The Benelohim is what's known as the divine council. The divine council are other spiritual beings in the Bible, not, not my words. In the Bible, there are also other creatures made in the image of God. You see this in Job, when there's a council of people helping decide Job's fate. And God says, Job is a righteous man. And the, this person says, well, what if Job is only doing what's righteous for what's in it for him? And, and, and this is a council decision. So there are some of the council that rebelled against God. And so not only was there, and this is a common theme that I paint, that, that's painted on the Bible. And this is very simple to show you because in um, Genesis, I believe, 6, he says that he took, that, that the sons of God took women and saw that they were good to mate with. And in the same thing, you have an inversion of that same story where it happens with Lot, where the three angels are in Lot's home and they try to rape the three angels, Right. And in the way that they say is try to take them. Right. And it's playing off that same wisdom literature language of seeing something from your own perception and deciding selfishly what is good. Right. Um, it's that same repeating pattern that the Bible is connecting this web to that always traces back to the beginning in Genesis. So they so there's this twin rebellion, the human and spiritual happening alongside each other of people taking their free will to do what God did not create us to do. And so what they're doing is they're continuing to talk and fraternize with them people. And eventually, as we see in the video, what comes out of that is Babylon. Babylon is what's known as this tower that all we know is that these people spoke one language one day and spoke 20 the next. And it was a tower that they built up to the heavens. Um, and it's, it was trying to, what it was trying to do was capture the idea of Eden for itself. And the way that it tried to create that Eden was through luxury and oppression and taking advantage of other people and, and, and conquest of other lands, as we saw in the videos, to pasha against them, to transgress against them, which is, once again, just as much sin as anything else that we do. And so they built this tower up to, to God. But the only problem is that the idea of heaven is not heaven if it doesn't include God in it. So it was separate and devoid of God. So he split it up. And so what we have today are, res are remnants that resemble Babylon. Look at capitalism in America today and the luxury. It's perpetuating you only need to trust yourself, and here are all of the resources and luxuries available to you. Take them. You don't have to trust people. Has anybody ever seen the post-apocalyptic uh, uh, kind of futuristic portrayal of humanity? of what we look like trapped behind a screen, trapped, like, like I want, and, and this is the last thing that I wanted to wrap up with, and this is gonna be a part of the discussion, but think about what it really means to be less human. Like what, what it really means to sin when you, if, like I want, I want to start making sex just as much of a sin as scrolling endlessly on your phone, because that is less human just as much as, 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 broken patterns of trust and relationship with people. I want, do you, I want you to connect those dots. You're diminished, you're numbed, and you're numbed, and so now you have to eat things that perpetuate that numbness. Authenticity goes out the window. The geeky, nerdy, quirky, innocent parts of yourself are condemned in our culture and our society, and you need to eat things and consume things to constantly repress that in which you really are. 
That is what sin is. All right. So amongst your groups, that is it. I'm done. We're going to be talking. Uh, this is only going to be able to last 10 minutes, uh, these discussion questions. Um, so don't spend too long on any one of them. If, if actually it works better, pick the ones that you guys like the most at your tables to talk about. Thanks, guys. Okay, everybody, it's quarter after, so we're going to move into a time of worship. But before we do, Tommy Hill, would you come up here, please? I don't know if you all, I, I think about all of you know Tommy, but Tommy has been, has been uh, a, a, a great part of this ministry, and uh, he's, he's just, his words, he's gained so much through Alive, and he's now going to be graduating and moving on to a uh, job of his dreams, basically, uh, and near his hometown, actually very near, <laughs> in his hometown. So... I'd just like everybody to extend their hands and let's just pray over Tommy and just uh, just bless, you know, what the Lord's going to do. Yeah, leaders, yeah, yeah. Any, anybody that wants to come up, come on up, yeah. Everybody, all hands on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
You guys a little cold? I'm cold. All right, let's, we don't have long, let's stand up. Let's get moving a little bit. Let's spread out. the 
So I know I said some pretty radical things tonight. I'm not every asking anyone to take my opinion. I'm just asking you to reinvestigate yourself, your relationship with God and what his plan is. So today, what I really just want to do is I just want anyone who is struggling with that condemnation and those things, I just want to you to sink in the unconditional love of God in a place that you have no control of cleaning up your own mess. You have no control to clean up yourself apart from him. You may till the garden, you may, you know, reap the soil, you may, you may put fences up to keep animals out, but at the end of the day, you don't grow the fruit. He does. 
So if anyone is insecure or self-conscious about this journey of life that they're living and becoming wise creatures who reflect a rule and image with God as they rule alongside him, if anybody is struggling with what it really means to be human and they feel like they're not up to par or that they're missing their mark or they're sinning, I just want you to invite you back into God's forgiveness. And his forgiveness is to take the weight of the burdens and the mess that we have made upon himself to restore us to right relationship. Amen. Thank you, Amir. So uh, we're going to go into a time of ministry and, and everyone uh, that, you know, leaders and people uh, trained to pray, I guess line up maybe on the sides or up front here and then uh, please go and get prayer for anything. I mean, like Amir highlighted for any physical pain or anything like that. Randy and Harriet are here and they're, they're willing to pray as well. And, uh, Maddie has a word. All right, guys. So we talked about sin tonight, right? And that's a heavy subject. And I'm just here. Like, I felt like God put it on my heart that he already approves of you. Like, your sin does not define who you are as a person in God's eyes. He created each and every one of you in his image. He would leave the 99 to come find you every single time. He created you, and your sin does not define you. So God, it says you're so, so worthy. So what, our mistakes and our sins, they don't define us. God loves each and every single one of you so, so much. And I just feel like sometimes we condemn ourselves so much with sin that we forget that Jesus chose us. Jesus loves us. And he is the reason we're all here. Because we were made in his image and we were made perfect. And he loves in each and every one of you. So that's what I had. Amen.
to be intentional is that a lot of the worship songs that have been sung tonight have emphasized that God is near, that there is no space between us. Um, and that's not just for fluffy, flowery, creative license that these people wrote those lyrics. That's biblical and it's truth. We learned a lot about Adam and Eve tonight. And one of the things we did not directly touch was God's response. The first thing out of God's mouth was, where are you? It wasn't, are you okay? It wasn't, are you sure about what you heard? It was, where are you? That question in itself is reconciliation. That's God drawing us back to the place we were intended. Space was never the intention. There's no space between us and God. Worship is the way that that space is restored. Prayer is the way that space is restored. You just talking to God restores that space. It brings you near to him. God's response to anything outside of him is, where are you? Come near me. So we worship and we sing not because it's fun and it is fun, but that's not the sole reason. It's not for performance. Each of these people, they are coming near and helping us to draw near to the Father because that is the place he desires for us to be. So if you are in a place, if the place is like, I don't know if I want to be near God, let's talk about the trust thing. If you are close and you want to stay close, let's talk about discipline and diligence. But don't leave here without whatever you feel you need from the Father. None of us will provide it ourselves, but he will provide it to you through us. So if you need prayer, if you just want people to stand near you arm in arm while you worship, we are here for that. Don't 
know what that sounds like, but if you just listen for a little bit and sing it with me, um, it's really powerful. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's what we were talking about today, that God is one, we are one, and because of Jesus, we are one with God. And I think it's so powerful to think about God is with us. And it really does go into what we were singing before, that there's no space between us.
Yeah, Jesus, we're just so thankful that you love us so much. And thank you that you never stop running after us. You never give up on us. And God, please just show us what you have for us, all the blessings, the amazing pursuit that you have laid out for us in our lives. And God, just give us the strength to give up our power to you. Be our strength, God. We love you, Jesus. Hi guys, um, I just wanted to say that there was this point where we were worshiping, we first started worshiping, and I could just feel these things being pulled out, pulled out, pulled out. And it felt like God was trying to get us to just giving it all up, just giving up all of the makeup versions of who we think we are, who we wanna be, all these different identities that we've perceived ourselves to be. And in that moment that we give up, give it up to God, in that moment I could feel myself release and open my heart up to God. And I could just feel him pouring out and allowing me to receive everything that he has for me, his love, his peace, his provision, what God has in store for you. On the other side, we talked about what's on the other side of letting go and what's on the other side is God. He wants to give you him. He wants to take away everything and he wants to give you him. And um, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of worry and there's a lot of doubt, but I just wanna let you know that what is on the other side of that is so much greater than what the enemy has told you and what he's telling you. Um, and God is worth it. He's worth it. with you, but we get to walk together side by side in times like these, because we've been created for relationship, we've been created for community. So it's in these places that we learn more about who you are and who you've made us to be. Help us walk in this revelation that Amir brought us. Challenge us and form us into being more human. In Jesus' name. up here but uh, so we want to respect the facilities team so we try to be you know pretty much out of here by 930 if we can be but thank you all for coming and look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks and just uh, blessings over all of you I want just one quick uh, uh, news item so if you when you sign up for uh, the retreat included in your sign up fee is a t-shirt and that t-shirt is only $15 when you're signing up. So uh, if you were thinking about buying a shirt, I'm not trying to tell you not to, but if you're thinking about going to the retreat, you can save yourself a few bucks by waiting and you'll get a, a t-shirt for the $15. So please consider getting signed up for the retreat. We need to get numbers kind of established so that we can you know, do the best we can at giving a great experience. And I know God's really gonna move during this. And I just, I can't wait to, to just spend three days disconnected from from uh, 
our normal lives and just pressing into the Lord and into each other. And so I just I just encourage you to just pray over it. Uh, and and if anybody, if there's a financial blockade, if you really want to go but you just can't afford to go, uh, please get with with Angie and I, and uh, we well, there'll be some scholarships I'm sure available if you just can't do it. So God bless you all. Thank you, worship team. You're awesome. Thank you, Amir, for that great word you brought. And we love you all. We'll see you next time. Amen.